0: I'm no psychologist, but we take complex factors such as nature and nurture. I say some of us are eternal optimists, while others are stoic realists. You got the glasses half empty, and then you got the glasses half full. There's the Pollyanna versus the Debbie Downer, Tigger, and Eeyore. This is the best of times. This is the worst of times. This is heaven. This is hell. Or maybe you like to walk right down the middle and temper your expectations. You know, spare yourself of disappointments and leave some room for pleasant surprises. There's a story of a farmer and his son who had a prized horse. One day this horse ran away and the neighbors came along and lamented, what terrible luck. The farmer replied, maybe so, maybe not. A few days later, the horse returned home, bringing along a few other wild horses. The neighbors congratulated him, and they said, What great luck! The farmer replied, Maybe so, maybe not. Later that week, the farmer's son tried riding one of the new horses, and she threw him to the ground, breaking his leg. The neighbors consoled the father, saying, What terrible luck! The farmer replied, Maybe so, maybe not. A few weeks later, the emperor sent his army to the town, recruiting all able-bodied young men for the army. They skipped over the farmer's son because of his injury. The neighbor shouted, what tremendous luck. To which the farmer replied, maybe so, maybe not. We'll see. I mean, Do you live like this? Are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist? A maybeist? Surely we can do better than that. And we can, not because our confidence is in some political candidate or a human potentate. Our hope is not in a horoscope or the Pope. No, our faith is in God's promises. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. That's why we regularly open up the scriptures. Passages like today's from Malachi 3, 13 to chapter 4, verse 3 remind us we can do better than maybe so, maybe not, we'll see. So let's turn there now to Malachi 3, 13 to 4, 3. If you're following along in your pew Bible, In the Pew Bible there, um, you can go to page 675. Malachi 3, 13 to chapter 4, verse 3. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept this ordinance, and that we have walked it as mourners before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the proud blessed, for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Then those who fear the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who med- meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. Thou wilt leave them neither root nor branch, but to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. As we saw with other passages in Malachi, we observe some structural markers here. First, look at the very beginning of chapter 3, verse 16. That adverb, then, marks a transition and only occurs here in Malachi. It's a lot more intrusive than the conjunction, then, you see in verse 18 and routinely elsewhere. Secondly, look at chapter 4, verse 1, and the way that verse begins. For behold... That's a sharp transition into the prediction of God's fiery future judgment is so sharp of a transition that many editors and translators decided to begin a new chapter here. But we should keep in mind that chapter 4, verse 1 to 3 are part of the same oracle that began at chapter 3, verse 13. So that gives us a three-part division of this passage, three groups of three verses. You have chapter 3, 13 to 15, 16 to 18, and chapter 4, 1 to 3. But more interesting than the structure are the contents. I think that we have three major speech acts. The focus of verses 13 to 15 is on Israelites who have spoken against God. In contrast, in verses 16 to 18, those who fear the Lord speak to one another. Moving on to chapter 4, we see God not reacting to what others say. No, he's the one taking the initiative, speaking of the future, and declaring the fates of the righteous and the wicked. Based on these observations, I propose three ways to prepare for the day of judgment. One, avoid the fallible short-term perspective of faith. Avoid the fallible short-term perspective of faith. That's verses 13 to 15 of chapter 3. Two, assure yourselves of God's certain execution of justice. Assure yourselves of God's certain execution of justice. That's verses 16 to 18. Three, anticipate the final day of judgment. Anticipate the final day of judgment. That's chapter 4, 1 to 3. First, avoid the fallible short-term perspective of faith. Final oracle of Malachi begins like others. God confronts and makes his case. Israel gets defensive or questions the premise. Now upon a closer look, the sixth oracle should remind us of the fourth oracle. If you want, if you could follow back, uh, turn back with me to chapter 2, verse 17, and look at how that one began. You are weary the Lord with your words, yet you say, In what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? You see the parallels, right? In both instances, there's the same foolish multiplying of words. You have wearied the Lord with your words. In the fourth oracle, it's quite close to your words have been harsh against me. In the sixth oracle, There's the same insolence of Israel. The earlier question, in what way have we wearied him? Sounds a lot like the question here. What have we spoken against you? And then there's the same problem of adopting a fallible, short-term perspective of faith. In chapter 2, verse 17, you read, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. It looks looks a lot like what we see in chapter 3, verse 15. We call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. You see what short-sightedness looks like when it comes to faith. The Israelites did not serve the Lord with joy and gladness of heart. To them it was drudgery, pointless, impractical. Ever feel that way as you serve the Lord? To them, obedience produces no immediate results. They show no excitement looking forward to his kingdom and rule. If you looked at their philosophy of life, it would be closer to John Mills' utilitarianism than Apostle John's millenarianism. In the second half of verse 14, you see that they even tried walking around as mourners. Mourners would be those who set the tone at funerals and the period of grief that follows. They would sport unkempt hair and don mourning clothes. But that wasn't the only occasion to dress like this. People would walk around as mourners as they were fasting and praying, seeking God with desperate urgency. There's the example of Nineveh, after Jonah preached to them. Mordecai and the Jews of Persia did the same because of Haman. But as we saw in the earlier parts of Malachi, Israelites in those days fasted and prayed as hypocrites. Their worship practices were superficial and half-hearted. Underneath the veneer of ritual and sacrifice was all matter of evil. They chose superficial over true repentance. The tears they shed as mourners were crocodile tears. And this fake ritualism showed its true colors in the society. Recall how God's priests and God's people have shown partiality in the law. They exploited wage earners and widows and orphans. They turned away foreigners. I won't read it all, but what was said in Isaiah 58, 3 to 8, Applies here they've forgotten that prayer, fasting and ritual mourning goes beyond the surface. They had to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, share the bread with the hungry, bring the house, bring to the house the poor who are cast out, cover the naked. The Israelites are like those uh, consumers who don't read instruction manuals carefully. Once something doesn't go their way, they blame the product and the design. They try to return, return it to the retailer. When it comes to their faith and practice, these Israelites needed to be told, you're doing it wrong. They were impatient, refusing to take the long view of history. If all you see is what's directly in front of you, it's easy to despair, especially as the wicked prosper. It got so bad they resorted to calling the proud blessed. This is their conclusion as they see evildoers rise up and those who test God run wild. If we're honest with ourselves, we too adopt a fallible, short-term perspective of faith. Maybe there are moments, maybe there are weeks, or even seasons. It's easy for us to walk by sight, not by faith. That's why we must practice the spiritual disciplines to increase and strengthen our faith. As we go on to verse 16, we see some practical ways to grow And that leads us to the second way to prepare for the day of judgment. Assure yourselves of God's certain execution of justice. The attention now turns to those who fear the Lord. But there are some questions about their exact identity. Are these who fear the Lord in verse 16 the same as those who question God in verses 13 to 15? Or maybe they're a subset of the general public and they refuse to speak harshly against God. Or again, maybe they're a completely separate group. I tend to favor the subset or the remnant idea. They've stood against peer pressure. They did not allow evil company to corrupt their good habit of speaking well of God. But it's not that they've been passive or silent either it says that they spoke to one another. Now, what do you think they said? We have some contextual clues. For example, you see at the end of verse 16 that those who fear the Lord also meditate on his name. I take that to mean they deeply cared about God's reputation. Unlike the priests who despised the Lord's name, they took it to heart to glorify it. They've thought deliberately about God's worth as father, master, and king. They want his fame to be global, his name feared among the nations. I also think that they prepared careful responses to the scoffers' questions. Remember that many were asking, what prophet is it that we have kept this ordinance? Where is the God of justice? They are indeed tough questions in life. And those who revere God carefully consider how to respond to them. Proverbs 15.28 tells us, The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. Here's my guess as to what they actually said. Let me see if I can use some sanctified imagination. I'm willing to bet that they spoke contrary to what was said in verses 14 to 15. Instead of, it is useless to serve God, they would say, hang in there. The Lord keeps his covenant and mercy with his servants who walk before him and with all their hearts. Instead of, what profit is it that we have kept this ordinance? True believers will remind each other, hold on, in keeping the commandment of the Lord, there is great reward. Instead of calling the proud blessed, they would say, No, God will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. He will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. But again, we're not sure what they said exactly. But we are sure that they, God listened. He heard them as they assured themselves a God's certain execution of justice. As reward, there's a mention of this book of remembrance. This could be the Lamb's book of life, but that book was written from the foundation of the world, but this book of remembrance here seems to be written as saints honor God with their words. So it could be like the record of wanderings or tears mentioned in Psalm 56, verse 8, Or it could be like that book read before King Ahasuerus in Esther. The king remembered the good deed of Mordecai and threw him a parade. Likewise, not only does the Lord remember those who honor him, he affirms them. In verse 17, God says, they shall be mine. On that day, I I make them my jewels. In the end times, God will be faithful and transform the nation of Israel according to his unchanging promises. He will empower Israel so that they would obey his voice and keep his covenant. That way there will be a special treasure above all people. The figure of jewelry is appropriate because the day of the Lord is a fiery judgment and it takes extreme temperature to create precious material. Proverbs 25 verse 4 says, take away the dross from silver and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. We already saw earlier in the chapter that God's like a refiner's fire and he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. But the priests are not the only ones who endure the crucible. The time of Jacob's trouble is for all sons of Jacob. All this to make them God's prized possession. To change the imagery, God will be like a father to his faithful son. Psalm 103 verse 13 says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. And once God makes all things right, there will be no more confusion all the lingering questions about the prosperity of the wicked will be answered. It will be clear as night and day who are the righteous and who are the wicked. The one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Now how about some applications for us? Now we're a gathered community of saints like the remnant of Israel who fear the Lord we too must assure ourselves of God's certain execution of justice. There's a song that's been stuck in my head the whole week. The title of it is also the title of the sermon, Farther Along. The authorship's disputed, and there's been various covers of the song last 60 years or so. And It's interesting that most of these are not Christians as far as I know. Famous artists include The Birds, Ike Turner, Hank Williams, Peter Seeger, Johnny Cash. My personal favorite's a more recent and elaborate rendition from an artist called um, Josh Garrels. Now, If you happen to listen to it, you'll hear the comforting refrain. Farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up! Don't worry. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. I'm not suggesting that we sing this song together. But I do think we need to get together and say something like the lyrics here. Cheer up. Farther along, we'll know all about it. Now, if you don't mean it, don't say it. I'm not suggesting that we throw around platitudes. But our job is to exhort. Remind each other of God's promises. Speak to one another for edification and comfort. And meditate on the Lord's name together. In our gatherings, we should assure one another of God's certain execution of justice. And we need to do this on good days and bad, when we feel like coming to church, when we don't feel like it, We need to hear God's word from the pulpit in our prayers, in our congregational singing, in our emails, in our conversations. Together, we should be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We must follow the mandates of Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And that leads us to the next way to prepare for the last days, anticipate the final day of judgment. And what a difference a day makes. I'm talking about the day of the Lord. We already discussed the purifying effect of fire on the elect. Malachi 4, 1 and 3 emphasize the fate of those who do not fear God. See how the God of justice reverses their fortunes. Recall in chapter 3, verse 15, that the proud were called blessed and those who do wickedness were raised up. But on the day of judgment, all the proud and all who do wickedly will be like stubble. That's what's left over in the field after the harvest. The fire of God's wrath will consume them as he puts away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Then they will be trampled like ashes on the ground. Some take this language, the language of this passage, and advocate some form of annihilationism. That's a false teaching that says the unsaved simply ceases to exist at judgment. But Jesus himself taught that the flames of hell do not end your existence. Those who die without Christ face eternal conscious torment, both in spirit and body. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth in outer darkness and unquenchable fire. We find in Malachi 4.2 that the day of judgment is an entirely different matter for those who fear God's name. It's at once a scorching punishment for the unsaved and a warm, pleasant sunlight for the saved. The Lord God is a sun and shield to those who walk uprightly but a consuming fire to their enemies. I believe that the Son of Righteousness is a title of Christ himself. We see in Luke 1, Jesus is the day spring from on high. He is the great light that shines not only in the land of the shadow of death in Israel, he goes far beyond as light to the Gentiles, salvation to the ends of the earth. One commentator, Charles Feinberg, notes how Christ is referred to as sun or dayspring when addressing Israel, but as morning star to the church. And that's something to look into, of my interest. But for now, it's clear that once he begins his reign, Christ will be like the rising of the sun. Our Savior will execute righteousness in the earth because he himself is the Lord of righteousness. The wings correspond to the rays of the sun, bringing healing to the vegetations and nourishment to us. In the dawn of the kingdom, those who fear the Lord will be like calves feeding on open pasture after being cooped up in a pen. So when I read this, commentaries aren't enough. I had to see it for myself, so I went to YouTube and searched for calves going out for the spring. And that made me happy. I think it'll make you happy, too. It's like when I let my dog, Molly, our chocolate lab mix out in the backyard. The point is, we'll have the same excitement on that day after enduring the darkness. We anticipate the final day of judgment. Because we Christians take the long view, live in assurance and anticipation of God, We don't have to live with the attitude of maybe so, maybe not, we'll see. All the promises of God and Jesus are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now let me speak to those who do not know the promises of God. Apart from Jesus, you have every reason to fear the day of the Lord. All humans are guilty of pride, Our soul is not upright in us. Sinners are alienated alienated from God and enemies in our mind by wicked works. There is no fear of God in our eyes, and we serve and bow down to other gods. Instead of meditating on the name of the Lord, we've taken it in vain, profaned it, even cursed it. For all these reasons, we deserve to be stubble and ashes in God's fiery, righteous judgment. But the Lord did not leave us in darkness. He sent the Son of His love as the Son of righteousness. God's Son was formed in the womb to be God's servant. As man, He was without sin. He kept the ordinances of God perfectly. Yet the sinless Savior went to the cross. And as that modern hymn says, the light of the world was by darkness slain. But Christ did not die in vain. He became our substitute, took the punishment for our sins that we deserved. The obedient faithful son died for the sons of disobedience. He brings healing in his wings, Because by his stripes we are healed. They made his grave with the wicked so that we might live for righteousness. He rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. And in in that day, we will discern between the righteous and the wicked. There's only one way to be saved from that burning furnace. Become God's own through God's own son. If you will repent of your pride, turn from your wickedness, place your faith in Jesus alone, you'll be saved. Believe on Jesus and you will not be put to shame on that final day of judgment. You'll be a jewel to God if you trust in Christ, the precious cornerstone. This privilege is yours by grace alone, not of works. I urge you to think carefully about this. There is no second chance after death. There is no purgatory. There is no annihilation. Come to Christ today. Enjoy the assurance of God's promises. Anticipate what's to come. So much better than maybe so, maybe not. We'll see. As we meditate and think about the future, that future day of the Lord, once we have this assurance, we can praise our Savior all the day long. So let's do that now. Sing our final song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste the glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Before we do that, we'll pray. Let's pray. Lord, there are often times in life when we look around and just feel so deeply within us that something's not right. That we're not living the life that we're supposed to live. Somehow feel out of place. And it's not just out there, but it's in us. We don't have hope, we don't have peace. But we thank you that in your word you tell us what the problem is and also what the solution is. And we also thank you that you gave us time for many of us in this room to repent and believe in you. You did not wipe us out. You did not send us to hell the moment we sinned. You gave us your word and assurance through your word. We ask that, Lord, that as faithful believers that we'll be, help us to trust in you You also did not transport us to heaven the moment we were saved. You left us here for a reason, to endure, to eagerly await the coming of the day of God, and to be faithful witnesses, to fulfill the great commission. Pray that you'll give us the strength to do that. And even as scoffers and people who question you seem to thrive, may we not despair, may we seek you, where we pay attention to holy conduct and godliness. We ask for strength to do that through your Holy Spirit. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.